You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. You've read Granola Shotgun. You've seen Johnny Sanfilippo on our website. You've heard him on this podcast, I think, multiple times. I, I think this is his third or fourth appearance here. It's always a big hit, and everybody loves listening to him. He has a, a beef with, with me, I think, <laughs> or somebody. So we wanted to say, like, let's chat again. Johnny, welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Always happy to be here. It's so nice to talk to you. You're in San Francisco today? Yes. So you've gone down a path like this before. I think you have a touch of Minnesotan in you where you say, well, I think I'm going to rub some people the wrong way. And then when I read it, I'm actually like, yeah, you didn't rub me the wrong way. Like we, we totally agree on that. But the recent piece you wrote about a project you're working on in Madison, you, you use that same thing. Like, I think I'm going to rub some of my urbanist friends the wrong way. Why don't I give you the floor for a bit and, and then let's just, I don't have any notes for this podcast. So you and I are just going to chat for a while. Because you know, I can talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm counting on it. The short version is I've spent, you know, a decade or so with Strong Towns, the Incremental Development Alliance, the, you know, uh, Congress for New Urbanism, all, all these people. And there are, you know, you have different flavors, but you're all kind of in the same bucket. And it's because I love Main Street. I love small, walkable, mixed-use towns. You know, it's it's like every place we built a century ago, and these are my favorite. And I live in San Francisco, but I don't love San Francisco because it's got skyscrapers. I love it because my neighborhood is a main street town, and yeah. and there's lots of little main street towns all pushed together, and it, and it makes a city, right? So it's very strong towns. And what I attempted to do for quite a long time is join the, the, the little brigade of people trying to build more of these things, or at least trying to occupy the existing ones in, in a kind of a sensible way. And I discovered that it's not possible, right? That what you and what people like Joe Minicozzi uh, at Urban3 do is you calmly and rationally sit down and you explain things to people like, these are the numbers and this is that, you know? and that doesn't work. Because people don't make decisions based on rational information. When you have uh, you know, emotional attachments to things and, and we have fears and we have aspirations and it, it just doesn't work to, to say we can't keep doing things the way we've been doing, it's, it's not gonna end well. So I, I had to let go and I basically I tried. I bought properties, I tried to do things. It was, it was one failure after the other. Now, fortunately, I took your advice and I, I sprained my ankle. I didn't break my leg, right? <laughs> Right. Yeah. But there were small bets that, you know, they didn't necessarily go the way I wanted to, <laughs> but I didn't lose very much. Right. So, you know, it's good. Right. What I realized is that the, the, the big question that you're asking is we have a fundamentally insolvent development pattern that we build places. They're pretty good for a few decades. You get another few decades of mediocrity and then they just, they're done. They're disposable and they're insolvent, and, and you're trying to resolve. That's the big question, right? And what I realized is that we are going to eventually get to something else because we're not gonna have a choice. You know, when insolvency finally kicks in for real, after we've done all the crazy stunts, you know, we're gonna to get to another development pattern, but it's not gonna look like 1890 or 1922. It's not gonna be a Main Street town. What we're gonna to have to do is just occupy the existing suburban wasteland 
on its own terms with the culture that we have, not the one that you'd like. And that kind of gets back to the Madison situation. Like, um, I would really prefer to be in the older parts of Madison. There's not a lot of properties available right now. They're expensive. There's a lot of competition. And the alternative would just be to drive far enough away out on the fringe where they're building a new subdivision. And I, I have no desire to do that. So I compromised. And I said, what is the part of the existing suburban landscape that makes the most sense for me. I'm not changing the world. I'm not changing anybody's mind. I don't want to go through the meat grinder of all the rules and the regulations of the culture. I just want to do something simple and easy that does, you know, that I, I can afford to do. And it just means finding an older part of the suburbs that was built before things got really crazy. And you can still, on a perfect day in June, ride your bicycle downtown or to the university or to the medical center or to the lake or whatever. So that's, that's where I came to, that we're gonna to have to occupy the suburbs on their own terms. And then other forces will get us to the solvent new place, almost by accident. And I can talk about that. Let me ask you this. I think this is one that I've been struggling with a little bit is, I think we are in agreement on the trajectory of suburbia and its disposableness. And I think we're also in agreement on the idea that we're not going to build utopia. We're actually going to occupy this stuff when it falls apart in one way or another. I think one of the things that I've been wrapping my brain around is our relationship with the automobile in that structure. And I think it's really about the the future of the automobile. Obviously, there's, there's one narrative that Automobiles are going to become electric and then magically they'll be sustainable because of that. And we'll be able to drive cars forever and it will be wonderful. And I think you and I both find that absurd. But I also look at these places and many of them, most of them are not occupiable without an automobile, particularly here in in this part of the country in Minnesota. I mean, I'm all for winter biking and I think you can bike and walk in the winter. I don't have any problem with that. But not when you live 10 miles out of town on a cul-de-sac with five other families. What do you see as the future of the automobile and how does that intersect this whole mess? We touched on this together when we were in Detroit a few years back and we had a little debate at the Congress for New Urbanism. And I've elaborated on that a little bit more. This summer I was invited to contribute a chapter to an anthology and the book was about smart cities and digital finance. And most <laughs> I would have loved to have read your chapter. <laughs> oh, you when the book is published. You'll, 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 I'll send you a copy. But um, the most of the other contributors were either computer people who were going to explain all the nuts and bolts of how these things actually work, or they were boosters. Like we have these problems, but you know, technology will magically solve them all. Right. And I took a guess, a, a contrarian perspective. <laughs> right. I, whoever invited me to do this must have been like, oh yeah, we need, we need. They were, they were trolling everybody else. Yeah. We need crazy person in this book just just to throw everybody off so what what's going to happen is that the the non-government forces are going to step in the number one force is going to be uh, insurers so right now you're familiar with uh companies like like metro mile where you can volunteer to sign up for a particular kind of car insurance where you only pay for the miles you drive and uh, you can save a lot of money. So it's, it's really designed for people who only drive a little bit and they consider themselves to be safe drivers and they, they're, they're going for the discount because, hey, why should I pay for all this insurance if I hardly ever drive? 
right now that's a voluntary thing. Not too far into the future, it's going to stop being voluntary and you're going to have to pay extra to opt out because the insurance people really want to chip your car. And it's not just how many miles you drive. It's what kind of a driver are you really, right? So we all make illegal turns. We all speed. Uh, quite a few of us are on the road at two in the morning on a Saturday, uh, swerving a little bit, you know. And right now that's a big secret because nobody, unless you're caught somehow, like we don't really know how bad of a driver you are. Um, but it's all going to be known pretty soon. In fact, there, there are lots of companies that are tracking everybody all right now anyway, whether you're enrolled in any of these programs or not. And it's just a matter of time because what technology is allowing us to do is price things in real time. So we know Bob is a good driver and Sue is really tragically bad, right? And that's going to start to cost drivers money because they're going to say, look, here are all the things you did on the road yesterday. You could have killed somebody and, and that's going to cost you money, right? The deal is that it's not jackbooted thugs from the government who are going to take your car away. It's just that all of the truly bad drivers are going to get weeded out and all of the people who have uh, an hour and a half commute, right? They're going to get weeded out because this is going to get expensive. And the argument, and there'll be a whole ad campaign is, you know, do you really want your neighbors on the road when they're this bad? You know, think of the children. Right. right. And the good drivers, they're going to be rewarded. Right. So, that's going to be one aspect of it. And by the way, when you start having more and more people not able to drive because the insurance people are, are getting it, it means that you're going to have to start living in a different kind of place. Yeah? And uh, the other thing that's going to start happening is right now, every time you go over a bridge or a tunnel or you're on a toll road, there's a transponder. Right? They, don't, they used to have humans when I was a kid collecting like 35 cents every time you went to the toll plaza. But now uh, there's this little transponder. Well, that same transponder is going to be working continuously. So every time you're on any road anywhere, there's going to be a fee for using the road. Right? And this might be a public thing that the government institutes because they need the revenue, or it might be that they privatize the system. Because right? there are a lot of places that are so insolvent that they sell the highways to a company and the company collects tolls. So I can imagine a time not too far into the future, where you get into your car, you're in your driveway, and the car tells you how much in insurance, how much in miles, how much in fuel, whether it's gas or electric, this trip to the Costco is going to cost, or how much that commute to your job back and forth is going to cost. Um, and what it's going to do is it's going to squeeze a lot of people out of their cars, just financially. Mm -hmm. right? And the other aspect, and by the way, the, the way you'll sell this is you'll, you'll start with the electric cars because they're not paying their share. They're not paying the gas tax because they don't buy gas. So you have to charge the electric cars for using the roads. Uh, that's how they're going to contribute to the system. So it's a great sell in places like Texas that don't like taxes, but you really want to screw the guy in the electric right, car. Right. You know, He's a Democrat, right? Yeah, we don't like him anyway. Yeah. Uh, so that's, the, and then it'll just incrementally ramp up. Now, the other thing that's going to happen is that you're, if you're wealthy, you can get the, uh, the uh, all-electric self-driving car that'll be your electronic chauffeur. It'll be fine. But most people aren't going to have that. What's going to happen is you're still going to be living in the suburbs. You're still going to have to drive because you can't do anything else. But your personal car is going to go away. And just you're going to make the choice to go with a, a little uh, minivan that's shared and you're going to ask for it to arrive and it's going to show up and you're going to get in the minivan with some of your neighbors and you're going to go to the same places. And maybe there's a human driver, maybe not. A lot of these programs already exist. Like the, the state of Utah started to phase out a lot of their public transit stuff in the suburbs. 
in favor of these cards. But it's very particular because you go to a place that somebody else wants you to go to, like a job or like a place where you're going to go buy things and spend money. Right? And the other aspect about this is that Americans don't like public transit because you don't want to sit in a bus or a train with strangers that you don't know and that haven't been vetted. But the little minivan that's going to come to your house and pick you up, only people who belong on that minivan will be there. They're going to be people probably a lot like you that you're comfortable with. It's going to filter out the riffraff. And who you think riffraff is will depend on who you are and where you live. And it'll be kind of self-selecting populations that you'll be more comfortable. There'll be an ad campaign for this and, and that kind of thing. So we're going to move away from buses and trains and the suburbs, which really never worked anyway. And we'll have this little fleet of, of minivans. And private, again, government won't do this because that's not how we like to do things. Right. Now, the other thing that will happen is that in addition to the roads, which is one of the big things that you talk about, how do we pay for all this public infrastructure that we can't afford, is that the municipalities are going to figure out that 80% of the revenue comes from 20% of the roads because they're going to know in real time who's using it. Every cul-de-sac is a huge money. It's a shared driveway. Right, yeah. there's a shared driveway, yeah. And, and when people show up at the city council meetings, outraged there's potholes on their cul-de-sac, not the city council members, they're not gonna have the expertise, they're gonna have the consultant from the tech company come in and say, this is a $600,000 project here, you want us to repave your cul-de-sac. There are only six people living on it, and we know that there are like, you, you use it for 48 seconds each a day, and we can't afford to spend $600,000 fixing what is essentially a collective driveway. But this other road over here, it gets all the traffic. That's where all the revenue is coming from. That's where all the activity is. Uh, sorry, we're not repaving. And people will not like that and they'll complain and I pay my taxes. And but eventually the numbers are gonna win out. And I'll use two different extremes to explain what's gonna happen to the roads that we're not gonna pave. One is I occasionally visit friends who live in really upscale rural enclaves up in the mountains or out by the lake or whatever those are private roads and they're maintained by a private homeowners association and they're gravel and they could pave them, but they know what paving roads is going to cost. It's outrageously expensive. And these are rich people who are savvy and they know how the numbers work. And they're like, not only do we not want to spend money on all of this stuff, but having a gravel road is more in keeping with the tone of our community, which is rural. And uh, it keeps out the riffraff because it's a private road and you can have a really beautifully designed pea gravel road that twists through the hills toward the lake. And, and it's fun, right? And every once in a while, you have to pay a, a guy in a dump truck to come and pour some more gravel in it, and it works just fine. So gravel roads that actually can be quite elegant if you do them correctly, and if it's your choice, if you're the ones making that decision with your neighbors, right? It makes sense. People are more comfortable with that. The other option is like a uh, kind of a rundown trailer park or a sad private enclave like that, which is, you know, it's a, it's a private road, goes between the trailers. And they're just rutted and muddy and potholed and nasty. And there's just no money to fix them. And people just live with it because, well, there's no money for that. Those are the kind of directions we could go in. The old pictures of, of my hometown, and by old, I mean 1950s, the city had nice paved roads in the middle of town, in the like commercial district, in the district that had been there for, for you know 50 years, 60 years. But in all the neighborhoods, it was just dirt, dirt roads, rutted tire paths but they did not have necessarily have paved roads everywhere. Right. Now, there's another aspect of this, and I, in my, in my uh, chapter, I, I included it. The city of Philadelphia had a big problem with uh, its uh, sewer system. 
it was a 300 year old sewer system. Every time there's a storm, it overflows, raw sewage winds up in the river. And they uh, couldn't solve this. Like there was a political problem. You couldn't raise taxes. There's billions and billions of dollars to fix this stuff. You're an engineer, you know how that works. And the federal and state governments were making them do this. Right. It was a, a water was quality a issue. Yeah. Health, health problem. So they came up with a system that, again, they, they got a tech company to come in and they did uh, aerial digital imaging of the entire city. And they took the digital imaging of the city. They matched it up with a parcel map of every individual lot in the city, thousands and thousands of them. And they identified how many square feet on each individual lot in Philadelphia is a hard paved surface. It's a roof of a building, it's a concrete driveway, it's an asphalt parking lot. And they started to charge people a, a fee. It wasn't a tax because taxes get into all kinds of- Right. It was, it was a, you're, you're using- It's a stormwater utility fee. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that like the airport got an enormous bill because it's all hard surface, right? Right. And, and a little, ha like if you have a little city lot, it's, you know, 25 feet wide or whatever. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of an annoyance. It's another whatever you know, $15 a month or whatever. You don't like it, but it's whatever. And the first reaction of people who got hit with a big bill is I'm leaving Philadelphia. You know, this is crazy. I'm moving out to the suburbs. I'm moving. And then it realized all the suburban municipalities realized, hey, wait, we, we have the same problem. Yeah. We need to pay for our suit. So they all started to adopt the same policies and it's sort of spreading because they needed the revenue. And uh, that sort of goes back to the private roads. Like let's say there's a private gated community, you know, a retirement village or, or whatever. So all those roads in their private, that's a hard surface. There's going to be a fee associated with that and people are going to have to start paying for it. And so the, the 48 foot wide giant lollipop cul-de-sac is going to become an enormous liability. Now it's there because the fire marshal forces you to have that space because the roads are designed by like two of the world's largest fire engines going back to back, trying to make U-turns. That's, that's why we get the, the roads and the shapes that we have. That will have to revert to something that the fire marshal is, finds acceptable, that is affordable for the people who own the territory, that is also aesthetically pleasing to our culture. And again, you, know, you can go to Paris and see the, the, the way they've used pebbles to, you know, to create drainable surfaces that you can still drive a fire truck on it. They'll work that out. Right. right. I want to ask you a few different questions. The first one is if you've read the book Nudge, which I'm, I'm guessing you have. Yeah. It, it's how do you, how do you bend people's uh, opinions and perceptions and behaviors in subtle ways? Like when I read this book, it was highly recommended to me by like really smart people who were like, wow, we can shape and form society in beautiful ways. And I read it as this like dystopian playbook and I sense that you probably did too. I, do you have a reaction to this to this concept, this idea of a a nudging state and a nudging, you know, corporate world? You're assuming that we don't already live in one. No, we. I think we do to a degree, right? <laughs> no, I think that the degree is so much bigger than you because if if it was effective, you wouldn't have noticed. Right. True. True. I'll, I'll give you an example. So yesterday, Farmer Craig came to my house. He, I buy my meat and eggs and, and things from Farmer Craig. And he drives down from the, from the country up north. And he once a month, and he, I fill the freezer and whatever. And I know another guy who's trying to sell produce in some locations at the farmer's market. And he puts up a sign and it says, I'm a small mom and pop farm. It's local. It's, you know, it's, it's not big ag. It's not a factory farm. And people will tell him, you know, we, we like traditional sources of our food, meaning Walmart and Target and the, and yeah. the supermarket and Kroger, right? 
because to them, the traditional thing is, is where everyone they know shops and it's affordable and it's reliable and it's, it's the thing they've known for their entire lives. And this weird hippie guy with the organic this and the eggs are a funny color and I don't know what that vegetable is, I've never seen it before. That's the weird thing that the elites, you and it's expensive and it's weird, right? So I think that we've spent, I don't know, a century convincing people that synthetic food wrapped in cellophane, you know, under fluorescent lighting is the real natural, normal, traditional thing. You've already been nudged. Right. Stop thinking about this as something that might happen. It happened a long time ago and you so, don't notice. Right, right. So let me ask you this. I feel like there is this tension I have this tension myself, but I feel like there's this, this tension between the idea that we take a snapshot of America today and we look out into the future. We, we understand all these tensions, whether it's over energy or whether it's over the climate, and the environment, or whether it's over finance, or whether it's over public health. And we say like, all of these things are really wicked, complex problems. And there seem to be breaking down and there's going to be like a, a phase shift at some point. There'll be something different in the future because this trajectory cannot continue. I feel like there's three different approaches. And the one approach is to say, technology will somehow save us and we'll use this stress to emerge in this much better utopian kind of world where these problems have all been dealt with. And, and it's just a matter of time and giving Elon Musk enough money to figure it out. I think that's absurd. The second one is this idea that maybe if we can find a, a, a niche Sure, the poor people might get left behind, but you know we'll, we'll eventually come back and bring them along. But if, if we can just like fix the core downtown and make it really nice, we can create some momentum and there'll be this shift. And I, I think I vacillate sometimes between that idea, which is like, let's do what, what we can and start getting things going. And, and maybe we can create something that, you know, in difficult times will build on itself. I feel like there's this third idea, which is, Daniel in our offices has jokingly called it, you know, after the revolution, but it's this idea that there will, there will be a break at some point, and then we'll pick up the pieces and put it back together. Is this the tension that you're feeling with Strong Towns and with CNU and with other places that we tend to be in that second camp when reality is maybe more towards the third, or am I misunderstanding that tension a little bit? You have to start off with the understanding that we are culturally path dependent, that there is just a narrow band of things that are broadly tolerable and you, you have to stay in that band, right? If you start telling people that the, solve, the, the way we're gonna solve our problems is to give up our cars and live in walkable neighborhoods and do infill development, they're gonna reject every one of those things just sends off fire alarms inside their heads. So we're not gonna do that, right? So COVID was a, was a, a crisis, like it was thrown at us and our response collectively was to be mad at everybody all the time about everything. I wrote. A I don't piece, have. A, I don't have a horse in this race. I Johnny, don't I wrote a piece at the beginning of COVID saying you're about to see the best of what Americans have to offer. I mean, like I, like I'm like this is now going to be our shiny moment where we we make this pivot and this change. And I could not have been more embarrassingly wrong. It was horrible, and it was the humans that were horrible, right? Well. I, you know, I personally, what I tell people is that if if our national policy was we're all just going to be independent, uh, you know, people who are going to navigate this uh, in isolation on our own, I would have like, yeah, well, whatever, I could do that. And if the national policy is we're all going to lock down for three months, nobody's going to leave their house by law, I would have been like, whatever, I'll roll my eyes, I'll do it. 
What we have instead is mommy and daddy are fighting. Right. Okay. And I don't think COVID was the worst thing that we're going to be dealing with. Um, I think that the weather has gotten very weird with freezing temperatures in Texas and with droughts in the derecho in Iowa. And, and I think that there might come a time when enough of these things all happen at the same time that we might have uh, like a food supply problem. And then we're going to have to come up with a national policy of like, there's plenty of food, we can feed everybody, but we all just have to do this one thing to make it work. And we are not going to do that one thing. We are not going to do it. And when you have people who don't have access to the food that they need, you're going to see things. It's not going to be pretty, right? That's just one example. I'm not saying yeah. it's going to happen. I'm saying that, you know, we have a monocrop. We just grow nothing but corn and soybeans everywhere. And it's vulnerable. Let, right? let, let me say it in a different way, because I, I, I think we agree on this. All of these complex systems, whenever you look at the failure of a complex system, it's like three things in succession didn't work. Like Rome falls because there's a, a, a virus, a drought, and then a virus like in sequence. And any one of those three, they could have overcome, but all three of them, the dysfunction of the underlying system, like couldn't deal with, right? I, I'm a big fan of Joseph Tainter. He's a professor in, yeah. in Utah. And he just describes like, you know, he was an anthropologist and he's digging up ancient civilizations. Like, why did, why did these people fail? And how come this went wrong? And why aren't these people here anymore? And he says, it, it all boils down to a failure to cope that you, you could deal with the drought. That's not a big deal. You could deal with income inequality, you, you could manage that, it could be massaged, you could, you could deal with this and you could deal with it, but when, when too many things happen, because all of our in institutions are mutually self-reinforcing, right. and that's good on the way up because you build up the house of cards, but also when you move one of the cards, everything kind of falls down. And he said, that's just, we, we, you know, societies reach a point where they just can't cope anymore. And people, people do not respond well to that. Yeah. So- you said that we're culturally path dependent. There's a part of me, and there's a part of Strong Towns that I think has been forced to deal with the culture issue. And we've done it by de-emphasizing politics and actually to the point of saying, almost to the point of saying, ignore national politics and focus on working with your neighbors and finding a way to be neighborly. And if you find yourself bringing Trump or Biden or whatever your you know trigger is into, into a local conversation, like just stop it, don't do it. Is that overly simplistic? I mean, are, are we just, you said at the very beginning, like we're gonna try everything until it doesn't work anymore. I feel like the cultural breakdown nationally, us trying everything, right? We can't agree to be neighborly on COVID and so we, you know, look to the federal government to have some Orwellian policy where they demand that this state does that and that state do that. Talk to me about how this resolves itself. Does it just resolve in local enclaves? I try to practice what I preach. I don't have any control over national or state politics. I don't have any control over local politics. And I don't have the technical skills, the political skills. I have no social skills. You know that about me, no social skills. I don't have the ability to change these things, right? So what I do is I think, what can I do on the household level that will make a difference, that will make me more resilient, right? So I have a lot of water stored. We live in a place that has droughts. We're susceptible to disruptions in the water supply. I have some backup solar panels. Now, I don't mean that I hired anybody to come and put them on my roof and connect them to the grid and the, 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 the power. I don't do any of that. I've got some panels I put on my own roof myself. 
I've got this little portable battery pack with an inverter and a charge controller and I can run lights and charge and I can keep my freezer going pretty much indefinitely. But it's just the critically important things, right? I have lots of propane cylinders set aside so I can boil water and I can cook for a period of time, not forever, but for a, a decent amount for a month or whatever. So I figured out how to reverse engineer my stuff so that I am not, oh, and I, I have a lot of food storage. I have a lot of Mormon friends. These are like the strange bedfellow friends and yes. they're great people. And I learned a lot from them and I, I have lots of food set aside so I can just eat and I have water and I have a decent amount of power and I can just continue to live my life while the outside gets wobbly. And I think if everybody did that, we could all be more relaxed because we know that, okay, the power went out, the water supply has become unreliable. I'm fine. And if everybody did that, we'd all be much more relaxed and less freaked out when things go wrong. Yeah. Right. And um, that's kind of how I deal with that. I don't see hardly anybody else doing that. We, we don't want to be dependent on the evil big government and we don't want to be dependent on the evil big corporations but it's so easy. It's so convenient. It's so affordable. You don't have to do anything. It's just there. It shows up at your door in a little box with a smiley face. It's great, you know? But I think that when those the fragile, carefully tuned systems wobble, uh, suddenly we're like, wait, 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 wait. wait, wait. Um, and I, I will often talk to people who live in the suburbs who hate cities. And I'll say, where does your food come from? Where does your water come from? Where does your electricity come from? Where, where does your fuel come from? Right. And they don't know. They're just as dependent on these systems as someone living in a high rise. Right? Yeah. That's the crazy. And it's, yeah. it's the same. Like, so on the one level, you can do all sorts of things uh, to make your household more resilient. But at the end of the day, when, when five counties are all on fire at the same time, it doesn't matter what you've done with your house. It's a bigger problem. The, the, the bigger society has to come in when things get bad enough. And I don't worry about that because I can't do it myself. So I have a wood stove. And I pack the garage full of wood in the winter. And, and we use, we tend to use wood as a supplement on really cold days. And then when we want a cozy fire to sit and cuddle in front of, right? Like it's, it's almost like a luxury good, the fireplace is. Yet I can, I can heat the whole house with it. And that was really important to me to have that here. What was your reaction last winter when Texas you know, melted down. They they have an ice storm and all of a sudden, you know, not only are people getting $10,000 bills for running the heat, but you have people dying. I mean, you have things like going terribly wrong. You see the same thing in Chicago when the power goes out for a while, a few years back and, and, you know, all these people die because they can't run their air conditioning unit. It does seem like to me, this, this project, whether it's on a dirt road or whether it's on a paved road, whether you're driving in a van or your own, you know, uh, automated vehicle, there's a certain complexity to the whole thing that all has to at least work at a subsistence level. And the heat and the power seem like one of those uh, to make this suburban project work, even in a deconstructed kind of way. I've had trouble imagining how that works, knowing exactly what you're saying about you know, people couldn't get toilet paper and they were freaking out. And I'm like, you're freaking out over toilet paper. Wait till you can't get food. I think that we're going to have problems. We're not going to respond to them well. And uh, this goes back to um, P. 
people like Neil Howe and William Strauss, they, they were the, the fourth turnings. They were historians who looked back for 500 years and looked at the cycles of history. And, and it's, it's a pretty simple, and they're, they're by no means original. I mean, the Romans understood this, that you have one generation that experiences a crisis. And it was so devastating that they all pulled together and they said, we cannot allow this to ever happen again. It was just too painful, it's too horrible. Their kids have no memory of the crisis. And, they, and because the older people organized things and built resilience into the way society is structured, they grew up with a fair amount of abundance and things worked well because they had strong institutions. And then by the time their kids came along, they're like, nobody remembers the war. Nobody remembers the depression. Nobody remembers all this I remember stuff. finding my grandfather who grew up in the depression anachronistic for we would go on these walks together so he could pick up cans in the ditch. And he would take them back to his house. He'd have a bag. He'd take them back. He'd crush them and then recycle them and bring them into the, the can recycling place get and get like a buck 50. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, what, what the hell are you doing, Grappa? Like, this is so, it's so much work for nothing. And he was like, we don't, we don't waste cans, kid. Right. You know? It's sort of like uh, my grandmother had a, a tin of uh, Danish butter cookies, but there were never cookies and it was little bits of string and, and aluminum foil that she had full waxed paper, you know, yeah. that she had saved. Right. So what, what's happening uh, here is that we're going to have another crisis because we're about due. The, the, the crises come in cycles of about 80 years. It's the length of a long human life. When the last old guy dies and, he, and who remembers the problem, then you have a new generation of people who are in charge, but who are clueless and our institutions fail and they fail spectacularly and it's really unpleasant and it's painful and young people start the cycle over again. And we go, okay, now we have to build strong institutions and now we don't have to agree on everything, but we still have to do this. This is not an optional thing, you, you know, this is life and death. So we're, we're gonna have a crisis and it's gonna be unpleasant. And I don't know what the, the particulars are. No, I don't think it matters, there'll be, there'll be a problem. And the old people will, will shuffle off and the young people will organize and they'll build new institutions that work better. And it's, it's not pretty, but you know, the last one was World War II and the Great Depression. Before that, there was the Civil War in America. Uh, before that, there was the, the, Revolution. the Revolutionary right. War, which yeah. was actually just another Civil War. Right. That's what the Revolution, you know, cause like a third of the country liked being English and a third of the country were like, you know, rabble rouser, crazy people. And the third didn't care as long as you picked one, they were fine. Right, but it was this, the Revolutionary War was a civil war, and then you can go back further in history. It's about every eighty years we have it. Does anybody remember the the financial crisis of, of eighteen seventy three or the financial crisis of eighteen thirty seven? Like nobody has any memory of these things anymore, but they happen. They, they're they're cyclical, uh, and we're we're heading into one of them right now. How did you interpret the condo collapse in Miami? You know, there's been all this stuff about it subsequently, but. You know, I have all these friends, and you do too, who think, you know, cities are the future and cities are great and we should all be building more and more of these condo units, either for affordable housing reasons or what have you throughout all our cities. Give me your take on the condo thing. We build disposable places. Yeah. We build things as quickly and as cheaply as we can. We build cheap. We sell at a premium with a lot of superficial bling because people like the fancy appliances and... Uh, uh, and, and the, whatever the latest light fixtures are, those, that's what sells property. Like with this Madison house, I bought it back in March and it, there was not one thing wrong with this house. Everything was fine, right? But it just looked old. You know, it was the, the vinyl floor in the kitchen and it was the original 1950 electric stove and uh, the light fix. It was, it just looked dated. And I knew 
that what this house really needed was a massive amount of additional insulation and vapor barriers and all that. And that, you know, that's what I wanted to spend the money on. And I had people come in and, and then I realized like by the time I'm done doing all the really important stuff, it's still going to look like a really sad old grandma house and nobody's going to want to live in it. Right. So right. I had to put in the fanciest stove with the big vent hood and the, and the dishwasher and the wood floors. And it looks really nice, but it doesn't have any more insulation now than it did in 1950. Right. So right. And now my plan is to get to the insulation next. That's the next round of improvements. It's gonna, and I've got to put in a new furnace and all that kind of stuff. And I'm phasing it in over time, but I had to do the cosmetic stuff first because that's what people really care about. They say they care about the other stuff, but they don't. It's like they did a study and people are more worried about the cup holders in a new car than how many, how many miles a gallon you get. Right. right? You have right. to get the cup holder first. Then you can think about the, so um, yesterday I was riding my bike kind of a pudgy middle-aged guy. I've been trying to exercise more. So I, every day I ride my bike, like I'll do like a dozen miles and I, you know, I, I ride to Golden Gate Bridge and back and it's about 12 miles round trip. It's pretty good exercise. And this time I was, I was taking photographs of all of the, the spalling and all of the rebar poking out of the, the sides of things. And, and it's everywhere. Like when you're, when you're looking for it, it's absolutely everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah. And it's in private buildings and it's in public infrastructure. And Steel reinforced concrete has a shelf life of between 50 and 100 years, depending on how well you take care of it and the climate you're dealing with, right? And once the rebar inside the concrete rusts and expands and contracts- It crumbles. And you're an engineer, you know more about this than I do. So our cheap wooden houses are disposable. The vinyl siding and the, and the spray-on synthetic stucco, they're, they're disposable houses, right? And our concrete, structures, whether it's a dam or a, or a bridge or, or a high rise, you know, you get 50 good years. If you're lucky, you might get a century if you take really, but if they're disposable, right? right? And notice nothing lasts longer than a human life. In fact, nothing really lasts longer than the business cycle. Like the people who build it need it to look good the day it sells. And then it's not their problem anymore. And then the first people to buy uh, the condo or the house, like in, in places like uh, Phoenix, Arizona, the average person lives in their home for five years. And they know this is not their forever home. We, we move from the place where we're gonna raise our kids to the place where we, we go up when we're middle-aged and we get the fancier place because we can afford it. And then we, we move to the retirement village. And, and it's a series of products that are used for a period of time and then we move on, right? So nothing is, nobody has an incentive to really maintain things. You make it look pretty and then you move on. Or you, 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 you buy in the next place where there's lower taxes and you get more for your money and you keep migrating out. It's part of the, the disposability of the, the landscape. Um, I stopped worrying about it because 100 years from now, we'll all be dead. All of our buildings will essentially be toast unless you know, they've been cared for. And 100 years from now, there are going to be new people. They're going to have new ideas about things. They're going to build what's important to them. And some of that might be salvaging what we left behind. And some of it is like they'll, they'll have their own ideas about things. I, I developed this uh, feeling when I went to Chernobyl, I went to, to Ukraine. We yeah, to Ukraine. I, re I remember, right. And there were young people, there was this young woman who was basically our tour guide. You know, we drove out there with her and she was born after the Soviet Union had already failed, after Chernobyl, like Chernobyl was history by the time she was born, it had already happened, it was over with. And she just was born into this world where well, that, well, that was just, yeah, we have this big pile of slightly radioactive forest on the edge of town. Well, yeah, okay, whatever. Like people just adapt. Like she didn't think it was a big deal. Right. It was like, it's a national park now is what it is. Um, people just adapt to things, you know? I, that's not a, a, a bright- No, it is, it is. But I, I think, 
So as an, as an engineer and just as me, I tend to struggle with the colossal waste of resource, right? Let me give you this. Right now, my school district is in the final stages of what is a 200 and some million dollar bond building project, right? So 25 years ago, we built a bunch of stuff. We didn't maintain anything. And now the bond was paid off. And so now it's time to go out and have Christmas again. Like, you know, let's go out and just build stuff. And part of this building blitz was like, you know, the way they kind of sold it was every school is going to get a little bit of bling to it. And so they've gone to all of these 1930s elementary schools. And one of them, they abandoned, they're going to tear down, they're going to raise, and it's going to be a parking lot. Um, But the other ones they've gone and they've taken these gorgeous schools, they've gutted them, which, okay, you know, uh, fine. But then they added on these, uh, you know, basically like Walmart shopping panels around the outside and expanded them all, you know, made them 50% bigger. So every neighborhood school, they basically took five schools and made it into four by increasing the size of every one. So you can have four principals instead of five and four lunch ladies instead of five. So that's, you know, more efficient. Economy of scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, you're paying for this out of a bond fund, which is different than your operating funds, which come from the state. So if you exchange a, a, a dollar in uh, the operating funds, you can you can save a dollar. It's willing you're willing to spend four or five six dollars in the bonding fund to accomplish that, right? Because they come out of different pockets of money. I look at this and I can't help but stare at this building and recognize that, like, let's say we walked away from it tomorrow and it just sat there. In 25 years, all of that new stuff would be crumbling and falling apart and, and, and done. And all of the stuff that was built in the 1930s would actually still be there and still be salvageable. And you could go in with a spray hose and like spray it off and then basically spend a couple months fixing it up and making it work. I struggled because part of people continuing to occupy these spaces is going to have to be a shift to an intensive program of maintenance. You know, like, like you're not gonna be able to live in that suburban home unless you and another family who's chosen to live with you and other people are, are basically like taking intense care of it all the time because the maintenance actually accelerates on it. It actually starts to like exponentially go bad at a certain point. And I, I, yeah, I see that with this Miami condo, right? They're sitting around going, yeah, we, we don't we don't really have the money to fix that or that is that really necessary? Do we really I want have a to fixed income? I can't afford HOA. Yeah, yeah. Let me take it to the extreme. I've seen people in small towns living in trailer houses where their water tests positive for fecal coliform. So they're drinking their own crap. And they don't do anything about it because they don't have money to do anything about it. Money, you know, is this fungible thing now we've decided but it's a proxy for, you know, your work and your capacity and your ability to get resources. I don't see how suburbia, which is essentially a claim on future wealth and resources. I mean, that it accelerates over time. I don't see how that iteration of people kind of hunkering down and just living in it happens. I've, I've struggled to like visualize how it would actually work uh, particularly with, like you say, the path-dependent culture that we have. Oh, I know exactly what that's like. I 
I don't want to get into too many gooey details, but I grew up in a family that was uh, fairly poor. We were homeless on and off when I was a kid. I left home when I was 15 and was entrepreneurial. Um, but the, uh, the whole point is that you can live with a lot less than you think if you don't have any alternative, right? So right. what you described is a feature, not a bug, because every dollar you spend on maintenance is a dollar that is not profit for somebody. It's not tax revenue for somebody, right? It's, you don't want, it's, it's the wrong bucket. You want the bucket that has things going into it, not the bucket that has things going out of it, right? Right. right. And it goes back to the disposability. So when we talk about the, our current development pattern, which is, you know, build it cheap, use it up fast, dispose of it, move on, right? right? Yeah. That's baked into every one of our institutions, right? It's right. not our zoning right. regulations. No. It's not the building code. It's not the way we finance things. It's not the way we insure things. It's not NIMBYs. It's not liberals. It's not conservatives. It's not the fire marshal. It's not the Americans. It's all of it. Right. And they all mutually self-support each other to force us to do this one thing. And if you try to deviate, you get whacked down hard and fast. So it's churn. That's what the economy wants. It wants constant churn. And the, the thing that comes out the back of that machine is the buildings that are falling apart and you can't save them because it, it costs more to, to fix them than to just tear them down and build new ones. Right. So we just keep building new ones. I think we're getting towards the, the end of our time here. So I, I want people who have been listening to us, because you, you and I could have like a dystopia fest. And I think, you know, part of this is, I think this is going to become really hard there's a part of it, and I think this is part of your upbringing and, and part of my upbringing too. I find myself at times having my best self when I'm in tough times, you know? And, and, and there was a part of the pandemic for me, I'll say this, and I don't want to offend the people who lost people and, and had people die and, and experienced huge amount of distress and anxiety, but I felt like I lived my best life in the pandemic. You know, I felt like I had 12 months, 14 months of, of the best time I've ever had. I was ready for it. I, you know, stayed home. I didn't travel anymore. I spent all this quality time with my kids and my wife. I had food. I had a certain amount of security, not because I'm wealthy, but because I've been prudent, right? Like I've set this stuff aside. I've got a garden. I grow my own food. I, I think I asked you this the last time you were on. Sometimes I feel like the critique of me that is really valid is, you want this stuff to fall apart because uh, you know you see a better world on the other side, but you're ignoring or downplaying the the transition. What should people take away from our conversation in terms of what they can do now or what they should do now or how much of this mindset that you and I have and, and share to a degree should they embody, and what should what should come out of the other side of that? Okay, so first, I'm not a dystopian. I, I'm not. I'm, I don't not, feel like I am either, right? Right. I'm not looking forward to to collapse. That's not what I'm about. Uh, if if I really truly believed that everything was going to hell and there was nothing we could do about it, I'd be on the beach in Mexico right now, uh, <laughs> indulging some of my less savory impulses. That, that no, that's that's not uh, the plan. Uh, like, why do I have? The, the backup systems that I have. It's because I think we are gonna continue and we are gonna muddle along and we're gonna sort it out. It'll happen. It's just gonna be bumpy, right? And uh, it's better to be ahead of the curve. Um, you know, like the Madison house, I have family in Wisconsin. That's kind of the, the pull for me to go out there. And, and um, it's a plan B. 
It's actually right. like a plan C. Like, you know, it's just an, another part of the country that I think is is a nice place to live with good people. And it's a fallback position. Now, I mean, I'm a middle-aged guy. I could I could afford another property, whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm in a, a good position that way. And a lot of people aren't. But you could, I, I think you could spend that on a condo unit in Miami. And you haven't. Yeah. You spent it on a house in Madison, Wisconsin. I, I've enjoyed condos in Miami. You know, yeah. I, I I travel there. I I stayed there, go to conferences and vacations and stuff. And I, I do like it. It was it was a pleasant place to be. Nice condo. You look out at the ocean. It's it's it's. I, I understand why people want to live there. It's fine. Right. But um, it's not it's not where I want to be all the time. It's it's a great two week vacation. It's, it's a distraction. It's pleasant. It's fun. Um, but I'm much more interested in in uh, Madison. It's more of my my flavor. Um, what I see moving forward on the household level is you can grow a garden. You're not going to feed yourself. It's not being self-sufficient. That's ridiculous. Like, right. you know, unless you're going to live in a cabin in the woods and grow your own wheat, that's not a thing, right? But it's giving yourself a cushion. And I really do believe that the way we could move forward without having to interact with any of the institutions that don't care about us, because like, believe me, Chuck, you know, I'm not going to change anybody's mind at a city council meeting. You've seen me do that. It's horrible. Yes. It's not I, good. And, and <laughs> I'm supposedly good at it and I can't do it either. Right. No, but right. you could, when you have to replace your roof, even if it's on a mobile home, hmm. make it a metal roof, right? And have the rainwater go into a barrel and you now have a backup system. You know, I mean, so there's, there's poop in your well water, you know, okay. Well, you have rain landing on your roof, right? I know right. people in Arizona who live almost exclusively on rainwater and it never rains in Arizona except during the monsoons. You just need a lot bigger tank and a big right. roof, right? right. So, like these are workarounds, right? And it's not about being 100%. It's about having that little bit extra that'll get you through, right? The wood stove, right? Like that's one of the things I'd like in the Madison house as well, because when the power goes out, you still need to keep warm and you don't want the pipes to freeze. Nice backup plan. It's, it's, it's Christmas charm most yep. of the time. And then, oh, well, there's the wood in the garage. You know, power right. went out. It's simple. Right. Yeah. So uh, I think that's how I'm looking at the future. Our, our institutions are going to wobble. They're not going to work well. We're going to have to muddle through a period of unpleasantness. We will come out the other side. How do you want to get through that period? So I'm not a dystopian, right? Because all throughout history, people have been waiting for the end of the world, and it's been 5,000 years and we're still here. It's different in different places at different times, but we muddle through. What would you say to my kids right now? I actually hope you get to meet them someday. I think you ran into Chloe once. I would like them to be able to sit at a, I hope you come and visit me sometime in Brainerd and we sit at the kitchen table and have a meal together. But uh, what would you say to, to my kids, which are really, I think that fourth turning generation, right? That generation that is going to be not only going through this change, but also creating these new institutions and these new places. So I try constantly to pull young people into my life because I think we can solve each other's problems. Yeah. I'm, I'm an older guy. Uh, I'm only going to get older and uh, I don't have kids myself and young people need things that I could provide. And they have things that I will probably be needing in the future. And I'm always looking uh, of ways that we can, we can help each other. Like somebody has got to inherit my stuff, right? right? Young people can't afford to buy a house. They can't do this. They're strapped down with the student loan debt. They've got to like, like, okay, I, I'm not super rich, but I got a little extra cash. Why don't we work together? And it's this goes back to the culturally path dependent thing that, that vexes me. I reached out to a lot of people, including one of your staff members who was trying to buy a house in Madison. 
right about the time I was buying mine. And I said, you know, like, let's get a duplex. I don't need your money. I'm not asking you to live with me. I know I'm a crazy person, but how about I buy a duplex? We're both on the deed. So you own half of the duplex. Right. You live in the half you like. I'll rent out my other half. You can handpick your neighbors if you want to do right, that, right? Right, And so like, you know, and then moving forward, we have this sort of connection where the older generation is helping the younger generation and nobody wants it. Yeah. Because the culturally path dependent thing is I need to own my own home. Right. Right. And you know what? You don't really own your own home. You don't own your own car. The bank owns all of those things. Yeah. But there's this illusion that you're independent because you took on debt to buy something. Right. Right. I think we could talk about that for another hour too, because there is, I remember when I got out of college and I was, I was 1995, I graduated with an engineering degree. And between there and 2000 was really like, it was the dot-com boom, but it was really the beginning of like the crazy funky finance. And I remember finding my grandfather, very old fuddy-duddy because he, you know, pay cash, Build, if you're going to build a house, build the basement and live in that for five years before you build the first story. And like, I went to the bank with that idea and the bank's like, we have, there's no way in hell we'll do that. Like we're, you're building the whole thing and it's got to be finished and you know, all this stuff. And we'll, we'll loan you as much money as you want. Don't worry about it. There is a certain um, financial craziness. The, the, the distortion to me, and I think this is overly simplistic, but does seem to emanate from this base of financial insanity. And I don't know if it's the cause or the effect, right? There's some interplay there, but it seems to be like the self-reinforcing negative feedback loop of, of insanity. So let's go back to like the, the, the basic concept that you think that the solution to our development pattern is that we have to go back to small scale, fine grain, mixed use, walk, blah, 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 blah. I think we're going to get there. I think that in a lot of places we're already there by other means, and it's the de facto situation, the under the radar situation, right? That's yeah. sub Rosa. So Santa Ana, all those little, you know, 1950s homes that are single yeah. family homes, but five families live in them. Right. right? The, the garage that is actually a little studio apartment, but nobody talks about it. Or the, the three different home businesses that are run out of that little tract house in suburbia. Right. Again, it's not on the books. Nobody's supposed to know about it, right? Because Orange County can't have a functioning tourist economy. They cannot function without an army of low-wage workers, and they can't live three hours away. Right. So somehow you have to fit the mixed use, the compact, the walkable, the infill into, you have to hammer it into the, the suburbia that we have. Right. right? And, and, and I think we've already started that process. You know, in other countries, they, you know, they have favelas. You know, that's where the cleaning ladies and the gardeners have to live, up on the hill where, you know, like, like right? Right. Um, I, I don't know. Did I answer your question? I, th I think we're going to no, get there by other means. It's going to yeah, happen. Yeah. It's already happening. Yeah. Let me ask you the last question then, because we're in this, uh, and, and you can not answer this one if you don't want to, you know, we're in this uh, time period where I think we're recognizing the class differences in society it's in a sense, another gilded age. You know, we just had a billionaire blast into space and we're celebrating that. Uh, we're very focused on the, the race and, and the gender and, and, and a bunch of other aspects of these divisions. But, but the one that seems to be the, the deepest and the most pronounced that maybe gets the end of the, the billing card is the, is the class difference. I wrote in my book that you know, cities of the past were rich people surrounded by poor people. 
And it does feel to me like that is what this suburban, you know, landscape we've built descends into, which is rich people surrounded by poor people, you know, essentially a return to that form. At what point does that become just accepted? And at what point does that strike against these sensibilities that we seem to be putting front and center? And, and I, I would say particularly with my daughter's generation, you know, the two of them are very hypersensitive to this. At what point do they just accept, accept it? And at what point uh, do they push back on it? I think the American way of managing this comes down to the nudge, the managing of perceptions, right? Yeah. Okay, here's a good example. There's this meme going around that, that the people in Davos, you know, say that uh, someday you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, right? And there's a lot of pushback against that because they say, oh, these are the elites and well, somebody's going to own everything. It's probably right. not going to be me. It's probably going to be that guy in Davos. Right. He's telling me that I'm not going to own anything and I'm going to be happy about right. it. It's sort of like a Bond villain type character. Um, <laughs> and I ask, who actually owns your house right now? Who owns your, your car, your pickup truck? You don't own it. If you have a mortgage, if you have a car loan, you don't own it. The bank owns it. When They're you have loaned, a negative net worth, you don't yeah. own anything, right? Right, yeah. Uh, you know, student loans, you don't even own your time because right. when you stop working and you stop paying off your student loan, bad things happen to you, right? So you don't even own your time and your effort as right. long as you have debt. So we've created a, um, a culture that allows people to fantasize that they're autonomous and independent and that they own things when they absolutely do not. We're already there, right? And the details might change. This is not about things that are gonna happen in the future. It's already happened. We're gonna extend the culture that we have that allows people to believe that they're getting ahead and that they're independent. And they're, I'm making this choice myself. Nobody's telling me what to do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna spend $800,000 on a house and I'm gonna pay it off until I'm dead. You know, and, and right, but it's mine. It's mine. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's not yours at all. The bank owns it. And you know what? The minute you stop making those payments, you find out that it's not really yours. Right. Right. Johnny San Filippo, the websites. It used to be Granola Shotgun. What, what do you call Granola it? Shotgun. It's, it's still Granola Shotgun. All I right. Change so platforms, but it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's one of our favorites. Thanks for taking the time, friend. I uh, I love you. I hope you come and visit me sometime when you're on your way to Madison. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.